Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. The Bible says, But there will be no gloom for her who has who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into uh, contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he will uh, um, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, uh, the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Seems sort of out of place, doesn't it, for a child to be born into all that? But there it is. Um, And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's very own passion will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this, um, this Word, this good Word. I pray that Your church would be encouraged and reminded as we, Lord, revisit this um, hopefully familiar passage to our people. Um, God, we thank You for it. It is, it is such a, a gift to us to, to read um, some 700 years before it happens, God, to, to read about the coming of Christ, Your Son, into the midst of this, this dark world. I pray again, Lord, You would open our eyes and reveal, Lord, great truths from it that we, Lord, because of it would never be the same. We would be, God, more and more conformed to the image of Your Son. To Your praise, Amen. Mm. The prophet Isaiah said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it's against the backdrop of all this sort of darkness that this announcement is made. I mean, you see that there in the text. Uh, really really a, a, a darkness outside and, and a darkness, I think, inside as well. That is outside of Israel and inside of Israel. It, it's, it's against the backdrop of the darkness of the surrounding nations, particularly the Assyrians. Uh, they were the big bully on the block in those days. Uh, Israel certainly lived under that, uh, that, uh, that coming shadow of the Assyrian invasion and, and exile from, from Assyria. They, they, they dominated that part of the world from about the 9th century to the 7th century B.C. Uh, they were a fierce and cruel nation who showed little or no mercy for those that they oppressed and conquered. Isaiah had prophesied that Assyria would be God's rod of anger to discipline the northern kingdom and and to take them into captivity. In fact, Pastor Eric uh, mentioned some of it in his sermon about their capital city, the city of Nineveh. 
You remember how Jonah had went there to preach and there was a, really a great revival, at least a short-lived one. Their, their, their king and their, their people repented. You remember that? Evidently it didn't last very long. Perhaps, perhaps even Jonah had some insight into that. We don't know. Um, they were certainly a wicked bunch of folks. The only thing that I think that rivaled the darkness that surrounded the northern kingdom of Israel was the darkness that was in their own sinful hearts. Mm. Isaiah ministered at a time when both Israel under Jeroboam II, uh, that's in the, the northern kingdom, and um, the southern kingdom, uh, Judah, that was uh, under the leadership of Hezekiah at the time. I mean, this was the pinnacle of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdom. It was probably the pinnacle of their both um, economic and political um, uh, success. But it was also, I think, a time of probably the most wickedness of, of, of both the northern and, particularly the northern kingdom, but both the northern and the southern kingdom, the zenith of their wickedness. Um, their idolatry, uh, their personal immorality, the political corruption certainly had reached a high point at that time when Isaiah spoke. With this in, in mind, sort of that backdrop in mind, he proclaims, those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Think about it. <laughs> All this darkness, inside, outside, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shined. Listen to that. Deep darkness. Now, that, that's, that's internal darkness. That's uh, darkness within darkness. There it is. Have, uh, on them a light has shined. And think about that too. On them a light has shined. Those in darkness. Light, light represents for us truth. It, it represents for us purity, it, sight, holiness, <coughs> glory. This truth, purity, sight, holiness, glory, a shi- glory shines into the darkness of, of that day, Right? Where there was lies, truth would enter. Think about it. Where there was immorality, purity would come. Where there was ignorance, enlightenment would come. Where there was sin, righteousness would come. And where there was blindness, the embodiment of all prophetic revelation would come. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> Light had, 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 has entered into a world not only engulfed in darkness, but a world that loves darkness rather than light. That hates the light because its deeds are evil, the Bible says, lest it be exposed. It, it so hates the light, it's repulsed by it. You guys have turned the light on in a place where there's cockroaches. You know what those cockroaches do? What do they scurry to the darkness? This is mankind apart from Jesus Christ. They can't stand the penetrating, inextinguishable, great light of the Lord Jesus Christ. The light that no darkness can dispel, no darkness can taint, no darkness can overcome to His praise. Amen? Light would enter into a hostile environment much more suited for darkness to thrive. Jesus was and is the light that Isaiah spoke of. He said, uh, or the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and we beheld His glory. That is His light. That is His shining forth. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten, right? Full of grace and truth. What was He shining forth? Grace and truth. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? When God looked at the state of the world and, and, and its darkness and sin, not in a reaction, but as a part of His eternal plan, He sent a bully. He sent a warrior. 
He sent a, a, a political hero. Is that what it says? No, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I mean, in paradoxical wisdom of God Almighty, He sent a baby into that kind of darkness. Think about it. Now, now, now don't make a mistake. Don't make a mistake. This, don't, don't mistake the meekness of His birth for weakness in His life or His mission. Amen. This was not a helpless babe born in Bethlehem. Isaiah goes on to describe this child more than 700 years before he was born to a people in need of light and hope and peace. A people in need of deliverance from without and salvation from within. And he speaks to them and he, and, and he, says, he says this first thing about this child. He says, this is going to be a royal child. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, there it is, shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He goes on over there to verse 7, And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Think about that. Now many times when, uh, when, the, when, the, when the prophets spoke about the coming of Christ, they, they, they certainly spoke of both near and far fulfillment of His coming. Both His first coming and His second coming. You certainly see that there, don't you, in the text. A royal child he would be. Luke chapter 1 verse 32 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. (laughs) He will bear the burden of government of his people. That's the idea. A greater son of David. In fact, the Son of the Most High. (laughs) There he is. He presently he rules. Can we not just shout hallelujah for that? He presently he rules, but but not fully visibly yet, but he rules in the hearts of his people. Remember Jesus said, My kingdom what is not of this world, he said. One day, very visibly, He will rule in a new heaven and a new earth. I think this is the idea that Isaiah has here. Both both in His first coming and in His second coming, He will and does rule. We say in theology, already, but not yet. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. That's it. Jesus said, uh, All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. That's a ruler, isn't it? That's a ruler. Mm, so thankful for that. He rules one day very visibly in a new heaven and new earth. And, and, and it will be a righteous rule. Righteousness will dwell in His rule because the King of righteousness will rule. And can we not agree today, and, and hopefully I know, I know um, our brother Jonathan is going to speak more on this next week, but he's the rightful king, isn't he? He's the yes. rightful ruler. I mean, his lineage proves it. In those days, if you just wanted to go down to the temple in Jerusalem, you could have, you could have traced his lineage back. Of course, that was destroyed probably in AD 70, but nonetheless, you could have proved it. His divine birth proves it, though. Amen? Amen. His miraculous life proves it. And can we not say his glorious resurrection proves it? Yes. There, there, there's no one above Him. Again, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me, He says. I mean, that's a ruler. I mean, in other words, what He's saying is there is no realm where I do not rule in heaven and earth. There it is. I mean, you can't get, any, you can't get a bigger ruler than that. The one who rules in heaven and in earth. I mean, what other plane of existence is there for Him to rule? None. <laughs> the idea is that there is no place He does not rule. And one of the great joys, I think, of Christmas is knowing that we don't serve a godless ruler. 
Think about it. He's, he's set in, against the backdrop of all the godlessness of that age. But Christ is a righteous king. He's not going to be like the godless kings of the Assyrians. He's not going to even be like the, the godless chain of godless kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. One after the other, after the other, after the other. No. He won't be like Jeroboam and leave a godless legacy for generation to generation. You may remember God promised Jeroboam a secure kingdom. He promised him continuing promises that he had promised from the very beginning. You know, the prosperity and the blessing of God. If he would just believe, God would deliver on his promises. But he didn't believe God. <laughs> In order to achieve security, he thought, since he abolished the national worship of Jehovah God, and he inaugurated the golden calf cult. Sexual morality had long been a part of that calf worship. And, and, and in this way, Jeroboam drove the people away from the Lord and into sin. And, and in light of this act, listen, 19 times, Scripture calls Jeroboam the man who caused Israel to sin. Now, I won't read all of those, but let me give you a little taste of that just from several passages here. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 15 and 16, For the Lord shall root up Israel out of this good land which He gave to their fathers, and He shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. That wasn't enough. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 25 and 26, His son Nadab walked in the way of his father Jeroboam, and in his sin he made Israel to sin. 1 Kings chapter 16, you just keep following through this. And it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the palace of the king's house and burnt the king's house over him with fire and died for his sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he did to make Israel to sin. Hmm. 1 Kings 16.25 But Amri, there we just keep going, Amri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin he made Israel to sin. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, And Ahab, you know that guy, and his wicked wife Jezebel, and Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass... Can you just see the progression of sin here? And it came to pass as it had been a, a, a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he, of course, you guys know the rest of the story. He led the people to worship the Baals and to worship the false gods. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. A couple more. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, and Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. He cleaved to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. And then finally, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 29, from the sins of Jeroboam, this is Jehu. Jehu kept the golden calves both in Bethel and in Dan after the sin of Jeroboam. Now, I mentioned Jeroboam and the kings after him because King Jesus isn't like that. Right. You hear me? He's not like that. Man, I hope that's a relief for you. <laughs> King Jesus is not like them. And praise be to God, He's not like the godless leaders of our world. Yes. He's not like the godless politicians of our world. He doesn't have an ego problem. Yes. 
Aren't you glad about that? It's all right for Him to demand glory because He does it justly. It's okay. He's he's not sleeping on the job. He's not promoting... Some of you will pick up what I'm talking about here. He's not not promoting the killing of babies. He's not participating in a corrupt family business. And He doesn't have to be voted in. He has already been duly elected by God Himself. And I say that to you because I want you to know He's one we can trust. He's one we can trust. He's light, the Bible says. His multiple names, I think, reveal this kind of idea that He is certainly one we can trust. I gave, um, I gave our girls when they were born, uh, Tanya and I uh, gave them two names. They adopted one. They, just, you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't help that. They just had to take my, name, my last name. But we gave them two names, uh, Micah Noel and Jonah Blake. Right? Names. You guys probably gave your, your children names. You didn't let other people do that. Right? But the, you know, our, the names that we give our children, they don't really tell us about who they are. The, the, the names of this royal one tell us about him before he's born. Isn't that wonderful? They tell us something about him. And, and, and one name's not sufficient to describe him. You remember what Paul said? He's the indescribable gift. Yes. And yet here, here Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, attempts to describe the indescribable. I love it. He, his names speak of both of his nature and his activity. Now we can't do that with our own children, can we? Because we don't really know how they're going to turn out. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what they're going to become. Uh, we know from experience what most babies are like and, and what they will do. But you can't name your child uncontrollable drooler. You can't, you can't name them destroyer of diapers. Or saggy pants. Or 2.32 a.m. screamer. Right? Those are just not good baby names. But this child that Isaiah spoke of would be different. And so he calls his name Wonderful. Isn't that? It's just wonderful to say wonderful about our Lord Jesus. Wonderful. The idea that wonderful is it's something that causes us to marvel. Something that causes us to, to admire or to appreciate something. It is, it is full of wonders. Wonderful. It is something capable of eliciting astonishment or amazement. I hope you're just thinking of all kinds of things that are coming to your mind in the New Testament about our Lord. I mean, think about it. Mary, after hearing all these things about the Lord, what does the Bible say? She pondered all these things in her heart. The wise men who came, who came worshipped the child. They left pondering these things in their hearts, amazed. The shepherds, the same, right? They, they were all full of wonder of this newborn King. We today throw that word around way too loosely. We talk about um, um, lima beans and jello pudding and um, eggplant. That wonderful eggplant. I've really never heard that before, but um, I don't know if you you like eggplant. But we throw that word around, don't we? Wonderful. I mean, even things that might elicit a, a response like wonderful, something like, like the Grand Canyon or something like Victoria Falls. I mean, they're still only categorically wonderful. I mean, we have to compare them to things less wonderful in order to use the word to describe them as wonderful. But this child that would be born would be uncategorically wonderful. Why? Because you can't compare him to anything else or anyone else. He's in a category all to Himself. He is the only begotten of the Father. 
There's not multiple only begottens. Right? It doesn't make any sense. He is uncategorically wonderful. What wonderful will be his very character, his very nature. When people encountered him, they, they, they weren't able to put him into a category. I mean, how many times were the people amazed at his teaching because he taught as one having authority and not as yes. the scribes and the Pharisees? You, you, you've heard that it was said, he would say, and then Jesus would turn around and say, but I say to you, but I say to you. Why? Because he's speaking from his own authority. I mean, even when Jesus quoted Scripture, I hope you realize he's quoting himself. Yes. <laughs> he's quoting himself. Scripture comes from God himself. <laughs> People were amazed by his wonderful works. They, they were in awe of how He healed all manner of disease and healed the blind and the sick and the lame and the hungry. And my goodness, He walked on water, among yes. other things. Turn, turn uh, wine from, from water, right? He, he, um, man, He did some wonderful things. Who is this, they would ask. Who is this that even the wind and waves obey Him, they said after He calmed the storm. Who is this that can forgive sins? Who is this that the demons obey? What manner of man is this? <laughs> Folks, we know. We can declare He's wonderful. <laughs> That's who He is. Secondly, there, just a second title or second name that Isaiah gives to Him, he calls Him Counselor. You see that? Verse 6, Wonderful Counselor. He will be the supernatural, I use the definite article, the supernatural source of extraordinary wisdom. There he is. He will be the supernatural source of extraordinary wisdom. This, this is amazing news, I think, for people who, people whose minds are so clouded with darkness. I, I'm convinced that much of what people medicate themselves for today could be cured by the wisdom of our wonderful counselor. Amen? Isaiah was certainly troubled by God's people's dependence on other counselors. He said in chapter 8, verse 19, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? In other words, Isaiah said, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're doing this. You're inquiring. You have the God of all creation and you're going to inquire of others. There's something terribly wrong with that. I'm amazed, even today in the church, I'm amazed at how many professing Christians rely on the wisdom of the latest fad or the latest yes. teacher or on the YouTube video for managing their life and their problems. Maybe that's okay, I think, for troubleshooting a problem with your computer or fixing a lawnmower or learning how to knit. But when it comes to living life, and understanding the human mind and the human heart, who is it that knows us better than our wonderful counselor? Yes. No one. It makes sense that the one who created this mind would know how to minister to it and to fix its brokenness. I'm not saying that we should never go to a doctor. I mean, even our counselor told us it's those who are sick who need a physician, he said. But I am saying this, I am suggesting that the wonderful Counselor knows us inside and out with precise knowledge and with perfect wisdom. He knows how to fix the darkness of our broken hearts and our minds. This is, I think, amazing and wonderful news for those of us who need wisdom, who need guidance. And that's certainly the case with myself. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab and Jezebel, says there in 2 Kings chapter 1 that he fell through the lattice 
his upper room and he was injured. And of course, we already read a little bit about him. You already know he followed in the way of Jeroboam, right, and led Israel to sin. And so he sends messengers to go and inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. That's one of the capital cities of the Philistines. Uh, Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, the god of flies. Go, go, go talk to the fly god about you know you've got you, you've got this god in Israel, but go talk to the fly god about your problems, you know. And so, praise be to God, there was this hairy man with a leather belt named Elijah. And he headed off those, uh, those messengers and he said, Go back and ask the king, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you go to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Of course, you guys may know the story about the parched ground and those, those uh, legions of 50, or those, those uh, uh, armies of 50 going and, and uh, the fire from heaven consuming yeah. them in that, in that moment. And, you know, uh, Elijah was amazed. And I'm amazed. You should be amazed. Or, or not amazed, but troubled yeah. by the thought that God's people abandoned the wisdom of God Himself to go and seek it out from fallen man. What does Sigmund Freud know that our God doesn't know? Do you understand? It's ludicrous. It's insane. Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. It's because there is not a God at Providence that you go and inquire of the latest motivational speaker or the life coach or the video or the instructional book. Listen, I realize that all all the experts are from out of town. I mean, didn't Jesus say that? So even a prophet is without honor in his in his hometown. I've said this for years that you know sometimes I'll be preaching or something, I'll say something, and my, my wife rarely believes it until she hears John MacArthur or Alistair Begg say it, <laughs> and I just remind her they got it from me. <laughs> she knows I'm kidding. Yeah. Hmm. I want to tell you there there is no greater counselor than than the hometown Nazareth counselor. Yeah. The baby born in small town Bethlehem has an answer for you. The word of our counselor is sufficient. There is a firmness in life that comes from hearing and simply doing the word of the wonderful counselor. It's usually not rocket surgery. right? I mean, he puts all the good counsel in places that even the little ones can reach it. His counsel is not inaccessible to those of us who are, who are dull and, and, and hard-headed as a bag of hammers. You know, I mean, He, he, gives, us, he gives us, all of us, wisdom. I mean, it's, it's accessible for all of us, even those of us who are not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, right? Me. You guys remember the parable of the two builders? What Jesus said. He's in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and He says, he talks about the wise builder and the foolish builder. He says, he says, He who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I liken him to a wise man who builds his house, what, on a, on a rock. On a rock. Wind and rain, floods come, they beat on the house and it stands. Why? Because it's, it's built on a rock. That's someone who hears and does what Christ says, what the counselor says. But he says, He who, he who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I liken him to a foolish man yes. who builds his house on sand. Right? Maybe he thinks it's beachfront property. Maybe he thinks it's going to be going to be prosperous there. But but he doesn't build on Christ and his word. And those same winds and rains and floods come and they've been on that house. And the Bible says there and great was its fall. In fact it it, it was fell beyond recognition. That's the idea. 
great was its fall. It, it, it no longer had an assemblance of, of a life or a house or whatever. And this is, this is for all who ignore the teaching of Christ, who build on another foundation other than Christ and His Word. Oh, praise be to God for our counselor. Isaiah continues. He, he's, he not only calls him counselor, he not only calls him um, uh, wonderful, he calls him mighty God. Chew on that for a thousand years. <laughs> this, this is the title of his divinity. He will be strong. That's the idea of mighty. And he was strong and powerful beyond the strength and power of mortal men. Beyond the strength of all the phony wannabe gods of Canaan. The baby will be in fullness God. Not become God, but be born God. Mighty God, he says. The Jehovah's Witnesses, are you ready? The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are wrong. They're wrong about this. This this is Yahweh come in human flesh. This is not some angel, some creature becoming a god, little G-O-D. This is not some lesser god, some half-brother of Satan below the Almighty God. No, this is mighty God. In fact, Isaiah associated this, this phrase, this title, Mighty God, with Yahweh Himself in, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, when he says, A remnant will return to the mighty God, a remnant of Jacob, he says. Paul shows him to be the Creator in Colossians chapter 1. John in the Revelation spoke of him as worthy of holding the eternal destiny of all men in his hand. Of him redeeming a people for the Father from every tribe and tongue and nation. He is indeed mighty God. (laughs) And one day, as we mentioned earlier, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that reality. Jesus is mighty God in human flesh. We don't worship, listen, let's be careful, we don't worship many gods, just a mighty and a mysterious one. And we can celebrate that. You remember what uh, John said of him in in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. A mystery, but one that we hold dear and true. Amen? Isaiah continues, everlasting father, he calls him. This child will care for his people as a father cares for his own children. And his care, listen to that, that word everlasting. And his care will not come to an end. I mean, this is the language of family, isn't it? This is, this is family language. This is the language of intimacy. The language of familial love. A love that can't be separated by time or, or conflict or divorce. Right? Or even death. It is an everlasting Father. For a people who had only known God from a distance, from a burning bush or a smoking mountain or through a prophet or a priest. I mean, this is wonderful news. This is hopeful news. This is awe-inspiring news. And for us believers as well, the veil of separation has been rent. Amen? We know the Father through the everlasting fatherly love of the Son. Remember what Jesus said to His disciples? You've seen Me. You've seen the Father. Yes. You've seen Me. You've seen the Father. Yeah. I mean, this is amazing news, isn't it, for all of us. Think about what that means for the orphaned, for the widow, for the abandoned, for the forgotten, for those who are alone, for the abused, for the unloved, for those who never knew the love of a Father. He is the everlasting Father. That's good news. Ah, man, if that, don't, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet, somebody once said. 
I love what Isaiah 63 verse 16 uh, says, and this can't be speaking of anyone else except us Gentile believers. He says, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Yeah. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. That, by the way, yeah. that was written in the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> There's one more I want you to see there, and that's, uh, that's Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Look at it there in the text. Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, let me ask you this. Have we ever known a time in human history when there was peace on earth? And of course, Eric hit on some of this. And of course, the, of course, the answer is an emphatic no. Ever since the fall of man, there's always been warring. I mean, it started with Cain and Abel, one brother killing his other brother. Inside and outside, mankind's at war. I hope you're learning this even through the book of Judges and the, and the book of 1 Samuel. And, and yes, many of these wars are ordained by God, but it's all ordained by God because of sin. Do you understand that? It's broken. It's broken. American history certainly is a testimony to that. Uh, our nation was birthed out of a war. Um, I mean, our short history, we, we, compared to many, many nations around the world, we, have, we really have a short history. Yeah. And it's filled with wars. Civil wars, two world wars, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. We could go on talk about some modern stuff. But, I mean, even, even things like drug wars and mass shootings. And, and, I mean, on a much more familiar level, level I think we can relate to this, abuse. As we mentioned in Colossians, anger, rage, internal warring. James 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You fight and war and do not have, he says, because you do not ask. But then he goes on to say, even when you do ask, you ask in the mist that you may consume it on your pleasures. James reminds us we war and fight because we don't get what we want and we don't get it when we want it. So much warring that we can't help but ask, will there ever be peace? And my answer to that is, when the Prince of Peace reigns supreme in every heart, there will be peace. And I hope you know, all the wars of men are mere flea bites compared to the greatest war that's been raging since the dawn of time, and that's humanity's war against Almighty God. Remember, men love darkness rather than light. Remember that? Mankind naturally hates the light. We naturally hate God. The only way we ever love God is if He first loves us. Remember Richard Dawkins, some of you might know, he's an um, atheist uh, microbiologist, written several books. One, one among many is The God Delusion. He thinks all of you are under a delusion. He thinks all the world of Christianity from its beginning until now is under some delusion that there's, there's a God. And, in, in the, and I've read the book. He, he, in the book, he rails against this God he doesn't believe in. He's so angry with him. I mean, he, he just rails against him and calls him. Now, he talks a little bit about uh, Muhammad. He talks a little bit about the Buddha and some, some other kind of false, what he calls false religions or whatever religions around the world and false gods and all those kinds of things. But mostly, he's just angry with the God of the Bible, yes. which makes sense if he's under Satan's manipulation. It's amazing. The insanity of a man shaking his fist at heaven toward a God he do, that he says doesn't exist. But the truth of the matter is, the atheist does believe. Yes. He's not honest, according to Romans chapter 1. He sees, he knows, he just hates the God he sees and the God he knows. He rejects Him in unrighteousness, Romans says. It is into this world that Jesus Christ is born. He inaugurated peace from God and peace with God. Do you understand? 
Listen to this, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And He turns it, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. You could take another thousand years and chew on that. In other words, on the cross, Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath against us, His enemies. Fully satisfying His Father's wrath through His substitutionary death. Paying in full the penalty of our sin. And in so doing, reconciling us who believe to the God we formerly hated. That's amazing. This is why He's called the Prince of Peace. Because He's the Son making peace between sinful, God-hating man and His heavenly Father. And one day, listen, there will be no more guns. There will be no more bows, no more weapons of war. There will be no need for them. One day, there will be no warring outside or inside man. But it will only come when the Prince of Peace comes to establish His eternal kingdom. But for now, let me give you some hope right now. That's not pie in the sky. That's not a future thing, right? But for now, we who are saved can celebrate His peace right now. This very moment. We we can experience peace from God and peace with God through the Prince of Peace. Oh, happy day, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away when He brought peace to my warring soul. And I hope you can do that too. I hope you can say that. Isaiah guarantees all these things will happen at the end of this. He says, This king will be born on the basis of God's own passionate commitment to fulfilling His purpose for His people. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It says that's the last, last phrase of that last verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And you know when God says He will do this, I hope you realize... He will do this. And of course, we have hindsight because He did this. (laughs) The zeal, that is His passion, that title, Yahweh of hosts or Jehovah of hosts, that that is the God of armies, the Lord of armies, the, the one who controls all of the powers of this world will do this, He says. Zeal will accomplish it. He was faithful and right. Jesus has come. And certainly we have much to celebrate. His wisdom, His protection, His fatherly care, His peace. Isaiah spoke of, a, of the joy of the people who have received this child, a wonderful joy. Like when a full harvest of grain comes in, he says. <laughs> or, or, or when a victor of war divides the spoils, he says there in those verses, in, um, verses 3 and following. Mm. Our salvation, listen through Jesus Christ, ought to cause us this kind of rejoicing, I think, at Christmas. If it doesn't, I think you need to take some time and meditate. Yes. Maybe examine your own heart and your own soul. It's so easy to get distracted this time of year, isn't it? Uh-huh. With everything going on. My wife and I were just on the way here this morning just going through our schedule for this coming weekend, and it's going to be insane. And uh, just uh, traveling to see. And I think the older we get sometimes, maybe it gets better as we get on older because then you have less family. But, but man, it seems like we get more and more family. I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. I'm thankful that we're getting more and more family. But man, it's, uh, it's uh, a challenge to be with all of our family there. And I think sometimes we can just lose sight 
of what, what this time and this season is all about. You have to be really intentional to think about Jesus at Christmas. Really intentional about it. Our salvation through Jesus the Christ ought to cause us this kind of rejoicing. To rejoice in God, I think, is the highest form of rejoicing. It's a gift, by the way. It is the truest kind of rejoicing, to rejoice in Christ. Man's chief end is not just to glorify God, are you ready for this? But to enjoy Him forever. The angel was right when he declared, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. My final encouragement for you before we eat is this. Sinners, repent and be converted. Saints, rejoice. Again I say, rejoice. Our light has come. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is is given. Father, we thank You for this time that we've got to share together. Lord, I pray that it's been a, an encouragement to our people as we begin to think about um, the coming of Your Son, our Savior, and all that means for us. May God, we take time this Christmas among all our family gatherings and all our eating and all our traveling, God, to do some serious thinking, do some serious meditating about our, our Savior, Your Son. And in that, Lord, find time and place for true, genuine rejoicing. We are the recipients of Your Son. Unto us, unto us, a child, a son. What an amazing, amazing, life-transforming truth. May we all be changed because of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.